Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I'm not going to talk about my video game, unfortunately. I'm going to talk about my day-to-day -day job, but I hope it'll interest you. Um, I started life training in medicine and then in psychiatry um, and spent several years in northeast London practicing psychiatry and became very interested in what neuroscience might offer the field and got deeply involved in research and ever more so, although I'm still a practicing clinician. Uh, in 2008, just over 10 years ago, I was elected to uh, a professorship of health neuroscience at Cambridge University. And this posed to me a very profound challenge, in which was to try and unite two hitherto very disparate levels of research inquiry. One of them is a very high cognitive level, looking at goals, rewards, value, belief, desires, sorts of things that we're all subjectively aware of. And the other was the lower level, the neurobiology of those, the ways in which neuronal ensembles might be integrated to underpin these high-level experiences and beliefs. And I think I've only been very partially successful in drawing those fields together. And, and as you'll see in my talk, there are a number of gaps in the fabric, which um, I'll be very interested to hear your comments on. Um, but to give a background to what I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to really talk about consumption and overconsumption. In 2012, um, at the 65th meeting of the World Health Assembly, ministers pledged that by 2025 there would be a 25% reduction in mortality caused by the non-communicable diseases. These are the uh, diseases of cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, and cancer. Um, these are major global killers, major global causes of misery. And to some extent, directly or indirectly, they're shaped and driven uh, and caused by our behaviours, by the decisions we take about what, when and how much to consume and what, when and how much to exercise. Food, alcohol and tobacco are major drivers of all these conditions. And in order to shift... Uh, it, to meet the target set by the, the health ministers, uh, we would have to have global change in behaviour and decision-making. Now, given that the words um, ministerial pledge and broken are no longer distant acquaintances, um, it's no surprise that we have very little chance of meeting that target by 2025. But a lot of my work surrounds the questions of how we might at least begin to address it. And hitherto, what's been applied is the idea that we educate people, we give them information. And when they have that to work with, then their decisions, their goals, their behaviours will ultimately change in pursuit of health. Um, that doesn't work. There's very little evidence that that's having any appreciable effect, particularly on the people we'd most like to target. And that's a major challenge. And it's a challenge that in facing, I think we come across two paradoxes that I just want to briefly um, outline because I, th I think we need to face them. The first one is more apparent than real. Um, the second one I think is much more challenging and tricky and gets to the heart of a lot of philosophical problems. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on it, but I, I want to usher in these paradoxes so that you're able to see the difficulties that we have. So a rise in obesity has been driven by really massive environmental change. I think that's unarguable. But obesity is highly heritable. Is this a paradox? No, not really when we think that the drive, the environmental drive to eat, has shifted the population as a whole, but the vulnerability to obesity, to putting on weight, is actually distributed across that population so that some people have very lucky genes and some people have less lucky genes in that context. And so the, the heritability of anywhere between 40 and 70% can explain the variability and vulnerability, and the environment explains the overall shift. So it's not really a paradox, but it's one that people often get rather muddled by when people express an interest in the genetics of um, overeating elevated BMI, because it is very clear that the environment is highly responsible. The second one is this, and this is a real challenge. I believe personally that our decisions are not free, but I do not deny 
the importance, existence, and evidence of free will. And I think it's worth stating this because people in my field of neuroscience will often rather blithely stand up and say, well, of course, the evidence from looking at brain studies suggests that actually free will is merely an illusion. I don't think that's true at all. I think there are many instances that we can point to where we believe that we're acting under free will and, in fact, our, our actions are shaped by circumstances beyond our control, beyond our consciousness. But I do not think that that disavows free will. And the analogy, I think, that's most useful is one that I've really borrowed from the cyberneticists of the 1950s, 1940s, um, who I think said a lot of very wise thing in their search for the beginnings of artificial intelligence. Cybernetics was a, a term coined by Norbert Wiener in 1948, and he referred to it as the science of control. And it derives from the Greek meaning steersman. And I think this metaphor or analogy of a steersman is a very good one, because we imagine the steersman tiller in hand uh, on a flimsy boat with a course that's been set, and unbeknownst to him or her is, are the, the rapids, the currents, the winds, the tides, the hidden rocks. And all of those will conspire to set them off course. But at no point would we deny that that steersman has a will to reach a certain destination. It may not be a successful inaction of free will. But the instances from neuroscience of seeming to show that we're not acting under free will, I think, are often very far from evidence against it. And I think it's worth bringing that out at the start, because a lot of what I'm going to say might make you think that I don't think we're in control. I, I, think, um, I think we're like that steersman. So here's the problem that we're facing. Um, I'll just talk you through these. This is women, and this is men. The time period going from here to here is from 1975 to 2014. Now, if we wanted our population to be all healthy weight, they'd all be in this green area. So the percentage in 1975 was of the order of, well, 77, 78% and below were all below the overweight range. Over the course of time in both women and men, the proportion at this end in the yellow, orange, and red has expanded very significantly and appreci appreciably. That has not been driven by genetics. That has been driven by the shift in the environment that occurred from 1975, sorry, my point is not working, to, um, to 2014. And if we want to look for the culprit, let's have a look at this. Uh, portion changes during that time. Uh, so in the left of each box is what you would expect to get when you bought either popcorn or a bagel or a burger or a, uh, a, a bottle of um, pop or soda and the number of calories and what you would expect in the 1990s, 2000s. So these have gone up really appreciably. In asking for the same thing, you're getting often double or sometimes near treble the number of calories. And this impressive work of design is rejoicing in the name of the salted caramel crunch coffee frostino with cream. <laughs> now, to, um, to order that, you need a, a lung full of breath and several calories worth of energy. But you're still going to come out 380-odd calories to the good for your morning coffee. It's extraordinary. I mean, that would have served an entire birthday party in the 1970s. Um, the, the environment has changed really profoundly, but weight is highly heritable. So the environment's the driving force, but our genes make us more or less vulnerable. Those are the boats, if you like, that the steersman's been given. That's the structure of you that makes you more or less vulnerable to these sweeping tides or, or winds. And if we actually ask ourselves, well, okay, if genes are relevant to it, to our vulnerability, or, or to our protection, um, where might we begin to look at these in terms of understanding their effects? And I, w I don't want to go into the details of this, but this is a massive um, so-called genome-wide association study done in 2015. Essentially, these studies, they look across the whole genome for variability in the genes that explains variability in weight. So you might find one gene that if people possess one particular version of it, then they're protected from weight gain. If they possess the other version, they seem to be vulnerable to weight gain. Now, these, this study identified 97 different loci within the genome that seem to explain variability on, in your body mass index, your, your weight, um, and so are therefore what you might call suspects or cul potential culprits 
in trying to understand vulnerability to weight gain in our obesogenic society. Now, where do they tend to be most expressed? Where do they exert their effects? Well, you can see in the cardiovascular, digestive, endocrine are all really quite low effects. But every one of the ones that exceeded this dotted line level of significance was in the central nervous system. So we have a um, inherited traits and tendencies, indubitably. We have a markedly changed environment. And perhaps by, ex and, and we know that those inherited traits and tendencies seem to be exerting their effects relevant to the brain. So by asking ourselves, what are the brain differences between people who are more or less vulnerable, we might begin to have a better handle on, on how we might mitigate that. And in order to do that, I think we ask ourselves, what does the brain actually do? Which is a question that's posed all too rarely. And the standard, um, the standard principle of, of how our brain works is that it's a rational organ that weighs up our goals and plans according to the current situations. It balances competing goals and ultimately adjudicates in favor of a particular action or chain of actions that will help us to obtain those goals. It is inherently rational. It rides above all of the, um, all of the bodily and environmental concerns and makes the decisions and sets our goals and plans. And of course, our entire system of morality and legality is based upon this principle. We judge people's actions by what we consider their goals and plans and uh, motives are. But actually, there's a whole lot of other stuff that's controlling this puppet master. And that, I think, relates to a different perspective on what our brain does, a much more nuanced one, much more holistic one, which recognizes it as an organ within a world that comprises both its body and the environment around us. And I'd like to suggest that, first and foremost, the brain is an organ that tries to represent the world so that it can predict it. Um, it's able to recapitulate within itself the associative regularities around it so that it can make predictions about good or bad things that are about to happen. The brain, in essence, is imagining the future, whether several milliseconds in, into the future or longer. And I think it uh, fits very nicely with the, the, the overall theme of this. The brain is an imaginary predictive organ. It's a real organ, but it imagines or predicts. Now, it might seem slightly counterintuitive um, you know, to, to, to think of its whole purpose as being prediction, but actually when you think about the survival value of being good at prediction, it probably completely trumps being fast or ferocious or strong. Better to have a good prediction than to have a sharp set of teeth or you know, sturdy legs. I'm not denying that those can become important when you can't predict, but if you can predict in the first place, you may not need them. And a very interesting thing happens when the brain is able to predict its world. Uh, when a stimulus, such as an apple tree, becomes associated with something that's nice or nasty that's about to happen. And the thing that happens is that that stimulus, that predictive stimulus, seems to acquire the properties of the nice or nasty thing that it's predicting. And you can see this very nicely in, in animals, in pigeons, for example, if a, a light will predict a food pellet, every time the light comes on, a food pellet appears, then the little bird starts to interact with that light after a short space of time as though it were the food pellet. It orientates towards it, it pecks at it as though it were a food pellet. If, if the light predicts a drink, it pecks at it in a different way, as though it were drinking. It's as though the light has acquired the properties of what it predicts. And this is known as secondary reinforcement in uh, cognitive neuroscience. And you might question whether that extends to humans, because of course there's a big difference in cognitive sophistication between the human and the pigeon. But, but I would actually argue that with proper training, a human can be every bit as sophisticated as a pigeon. Um, <laughs> and in fact, Money is a secondary reinforcer. It carries no inherent, well, gold does, but it, it largely carries no inherent value in itself. But it's often become a means, uh, or it's often become an end in itself rather than a means to an end. It's classic secondary reinforcement. I think we get this a lot. And I think if we start to scrutinize what's going on in the brain, this uh, is one area where we can actually link these high-level experiences, motivations, to, to very fundamental processes. And I just want to walk you through this. 
So this is a, a schematic of the so-called dopamine system within the brain. Now, a whole lot of guff gets talked about dopamine, the pleasure chemical, the addiction chemical, all of that. Um, very often, it's a gross oversimplification. But I think we can say something useful about dopamine, and I'm going to say it. Um, and it's pretty simple, and it's very basic principle, but it, it extends quite a long way. So when we're thinking about dopamine, we're thinking about a series of nuclei or collections of cells deep within uh, the midbrain, and those are projecting upwards in different pathways. So there's the um, nigra striatal, which is the system that's become damaged in Parkinson's disease. There's the tubero infundibular, which projects to the pituitary and controls a lot of hormonal secretion. And the one that we're really interested in is this middle one, the mesolimbic mesocortical, which is a set of cells projecting right up into our higher brain areas, including this region here, the um, ventral striatum. Now, the interesting thing about this region is if you're looking at the neurons either directly uh, with neuronal recording or very indirectly using functional brain imaging techniques, which I use, they are tending to fire at a sort of slow rate as a baseline. If you present a person with a stimulus, a very neutral one, something that has no salience to it at all, in this case a, a blue triangle, um, then they continue firing at the same old rate. Now, if that stimulus is followed by something rewarding, those neurons increase their firing rate. If this association is presented to that person many times, a very interesting thing happens to this period of accelerated firing, which is it moves backwards so that the neurons are firing, you present the uh, stimulus, and the acceleration of firing occurs. It then reduces. Interestingly, if you then present the reward, which is now very predicted because they've seen the blue triangle, these regions don't get at all excited. It's the stimulus that predicts, that grabs this dopaminergic firing. Uh, and this firing may be associated with anticipation, motivation. And the key thing is a previously very neutral stimulus has become able to drive that. Now, this insight, of course, has not been lost on those who would desire to aggressively market things that they want us to be motivated towards. And a lot of what we see in our environment are the sorts of stimuli that are not inherently valuable in themselves, but they're associated with things that are valuable. So these brands and logos, or the people who are associated with them, Gary Lineker and Crisps or whatever, they become um, in themselves inherently motivating. They can just upregulate our behavior sometimes, often indeed, below the radar of consciousness. Here's an interesting example from 2007. This is uh, three to five-year-olds on the west coast of America. Present them with the sort of stimulus that won't usually set the pulse of a five-year-old racing. Um, you can either do that within a, a very plain packaging or with one that's been uh, branded with the golden arches of McDonald. If they're presented it in plain wrapping, they're not too impressed. Presented in association with just, it's the same stimulus, but just with a different branding. They like it more, they eat more, they're much happier with it. So this simple um, Pavlovian stimulus, if you like, can really upregulate enjoyment. So we have two roots, really, to this action. Um, one of them is a sort of rational goal-directed action. So in other words, the, br the brain or mind thinks of the goal that it wants and takes the action that will acquire it. And this is the sort of goal-directed action that most of us think of as being what our brain does. It's, it's reflective, it's relatively slow because we have to represent our goal. Uh, it's sensitive to value. If, if we're no longer hungry, we're not going to take that action because we're representing a goal that we no longer want. Uh, and it's very flexible. It's just how we would all like to be. Um, and then there's the more direct stimulus-driven action, which doesn't require the representation of that goal. The stimulus simply drives the action automatically by virtue of what it can do, perhaps, to this dopaminergic firing. Now, this is unconscious, fast, automatic, insensitive, and difficult to change, so-called habitual behavior. Interestingly, um, you know, a lot of people assume, well, this is, we must avoid this sort of behavior. Actually, this is probably our best survival tool there is. This is a fantastic way of navigating our world. I mean, why bother with predicting outcomes when we can do things very automatically? Why, why continually, if you're t 
walking a familiar route be representing the goal in the end? You just take the walk and devote your processes to other higher-minded occupations. But of course, the problem is that if you disengaged your consciousness from that, then you may find yourself walking a familiar route when you hadn't actually intended to go to the place. Uh, the, the goal is not foremost in your mind. So I think we can see this as being essentially the, the, um, the master that controls the puppet master in many ways. So we have these um, inherited traits and tendencies the changed environment and the drive towards major shifts in health harming eating. And this is brain related. Um, and the traits and tendencies may, under certain circumstances, be advantageous. It may be an enhanced ability to use stimuli in your world to drive behaviors. But of course, when those, those stimuli have become fashioned in order to drive a health harming behavior, then you can be relatively helpless compared to someone who perhaps doesn't engage in that sort of processing so much. I mean, none of these are dichotomies. They're always a spectrum of behaviors. But there's another um, and very important contributor to this whole, um, this whole set of processes. And it's an interaction that I think is, is uh, deeply important and one that's often neglected. And that is that there's a contributor to brain response that isn't so ne much nestled out there in the world, but it's deep within us. It's easy to forget that the brain is actually not an organ in a vat. It's floating in a soup of hormones, um, metabolites. It's existing in a sort of static buzz of neuronal signals from the body. And these are coming from all over, from, from the gut via the vagus nerve, from the stomach. There are gut-related hormones, stomach-related hormones, Hormones being secreted by our fat cells. Our fat cells are controlling our brain, as I'll show you in a moment. Uh, of course, there's insulin from the pancreas. All of these are exerting a profound effect on how the brain is responding to the world outside. It's as though they're changing the gain on how we process the world. So for example, um, it may be that if there's a strong drive from our body, let's say through the hypothalamus, which is an organ that controls many uh, behaviors, um, that might be enough to override uh, something that the world is telling us. So we might suddenly find, if we're, if we're incredibly thirsty, we might find that a previously rather unattractive stimuli, stimulus, such as a rusty tap dispensing slightly dubious looking water, that might actually become much more attractive, in fact impossible to resist. Alternatively, it may well be that the world can override the signals from the body. So we may have had an enormous savory meal, and every single one of these signals is screaming out, no more. You know, our ghrelin's gone right down, our peptide YY and our glucagon-like peptide have gone right up, our stomach uh, distension receptors are at full stretch, uh, insulin's right up, leptin's gone um, right up as well. But nonetheless, when the dessert trolley arrives, it might be enough to say, OK, those, those signals are very interesting, but actually, I'm still going to have some of this, the so-called dessert effect or, or sensory-specific satiety. So we have this uh, situation in which we're looking at a profoundly complex interaction between the carefully fashioned stimuli of our world, fashioned by other people often, and by nature, uh, and the the um, experiences that are coming up from our body, from our viscera, telling us what our energy needs are, telling us what we should be doing, and changing the gain on those stimuli. A very complex and profound interaction. And a nice example of that, I think, comes from looking at people who've been unfortunate enough to have particular deficits. So this is a patient that I, with my colleagues in, in Cambridge, uh, Sadaf Faruqi and Steve Rahli in particular, who are at the Institute of Metabolic Science, uh, we studied a good few years ago, and it relates to an inherited single gene inheritance condition. It's a loss of function of the gene that makes a hormone called leptin. So leptin is generally secreted by fat cells. Um, as we get hungrier, it goes down. In thin people, it tends to be at a lower level. Um, in in uh, larger people, it tends to be at a, a higher level. As we eat, it goes up. And it's thought to be a signal from the body about what our current fat stores are. You can sort of think of it as the fuel gauge a bit, an indirect fuel gauge. 
Now, there are some people who, through a loss of function mutation in this receptor, actually are unable to make leptin. And what they've essentially got from, from birth onwards is a starvation signal. Their body is continually telling them, you're starving. And from an early age, they experience the most profound obesity, which is often mistaken by their family as being terribly greedy individuals who just are totally obsessed with food. And phenotypically, not looking at them at the deep level, but looking at their behavior, they do look like greedy individuals who are just obsessed with food. They are deeply unhappy, disturbed, and frustrated when food is denied them. The prospect of food, the appearance of food, will make them sing with joy, literally. They will um, pause while eating to push themselves back because their stomach's so distended that they're uncomfortably close to the table, and then carry on eating. They are starving, no matter how much they've eaten. Now, fortun this is, fortunately, it's very rare, and fortunately, treatment with um, artificially produced leptin will actually have a, a fairly miraculous effect, this is the same person sometime later, um, on their appetite and their ability to control their food intake. But what's interesting uh, is what happens in the brain when the leptin is actually on board versus when it's not. So we took the opportunity with a couple of individuals. They're very rare, so we're only able to scan two of them. And we did some brain imaging on them while they looked at tasty foods in pictorial form, both before and after they'd had their leptin treatment. And the take-home message is, if you look at these um, key regions this is a different view of the region I mentioned before, the ventral striatum, which is one of these targets of the dopamine system, so thought to be associated with motivation towards external stimuli. If you look at this graph here, this is before they've had leptin. They're in the leptin deficient state. And these regions here and here are marked by these black bars. So you see quite high levels of activity. They were each, uh, there were two subjects, and both share the same effect. One week after leptin treatment, long before they'd last lost any weight, but when they were starting to feel less hungry, the activity in response to these stimuli in these regions had gone markedly down. Now, it wasn't just a whole brain suppression because the actual visual response to these stimuli was just as chunky and uh, impressive as ever. So it was a very specific response or change in response uh, as a consequence of leptin treatment. And the, the take-home message of this study is there's, a, a, set, there's a, a peptide hormone being secreted by the fat cells of your body that is profoundly changing how your brain responds to pictures of stimuli in the environment. It's a remarkable integrated system. It's changing the gain on the midbrain dopamine system. There are also other interventions. So many people will have heard of bariatric surgery or uh, gastrectomy or clamping, stomach clamping. Um, a lot of people assume that these, these work because they simply, if you remove the stomach, then it becomes very uncomfortable to eat. And to a small extent, that's true, but there's actually a deeper reason for why bariatric surgery is probably the only truly successful intervention, medical intervention for obesity. There have been a lot of drugs that will suppress your appetite for food, but sadly, they also tend to suppress your appetite for life, and they can be very depressing to take. Um, but bariatric surgery actually does work. It's not without profound problems. And if you look at the brain response, in, this is the midbrain again, it's a different view. Um, and you look at the brain response to pictures of previously very tasty food. At the baseline, there's a certain level of response. This is the zero, so it's a positive response in our three groups of individuals. Six months later, you scan our control group, in other words, people who haven't had any uh, surgical intervention. You get the same sort of response to that picture in the midbrain. If they've had a particular process called a sleeve gastrectomy, which is a sort of more minor procedure that simply shrinks the volume of the stomach, they're still showing this mid... Sorry, this isn't working. They're still showing this um, midbrain response. But the people who've had a so-called Rouen-Y gastric banding um, have had a profound shift in that response. And it's not just the, the removal of the stomach. It seems to be associated with a change in uh, hormonal processing. Because if you then give those individuals a drug that blocks the hormonal change that they've experienced as a result of the gastrectomy, they regain their desire for food, and they show increased brain response in that region. 
So um, these two hormones, which are elevated post-gastrectomy, seem to be absolutely key in driving the weight loss that occurs and the suppression of appetite. So gastrectomy is actually, in some ways, a medical intervention as well as a surgical one. And, and, and the message, really, fr from this study and the previous one is that if you're thinking about how our brain is responding to its world, to its environment, then it's perilous not to be thinking about what the body is doing at the same time, what hormones are being secreted, what neural signals are being sent from the various viscera. So what we've essentially got is a much more complex pattern than is acknowledged in general policy and attempts at legislation when it comes to thinking about eating and overeating. Um, we, if we think about what is shifting our balance in favor of healthy versus unhealthy levels of consumption, we have a number of, um, I, d I don't know why I'm using this, there's actually absolutely no light. We have a number of different uh, factors that are contributing. And to make things more complicated, well, there are two reasons why it's more complicated. One is those factors are interacting with each other, as I'll mention in a moment. But also, any attempt to address just one of them is likely to be compensated for by the rest of the system. So if we think about um, one drive towards our behaviors is our long-term goals, plans, and values. I'm, I'm not denying the importance of that. I think it's absolutely critical in thinking about how people schedule their lives and their, their health-related behaviors. And one approach to those, uh, to changing those, is to educate people about what will be harmful or not for them, uh, about uh, give them the information about what the components of given foods are, the levels of salt, fat, sugar, and so forth. And there's been, I think, um, product labeling has to some extent had an impact on certain strata of people in how they um, buy and consume. But unfortunately, in some people, the words reduced fat, reduced sugar, are merely an excuse to put the product back and go and look for something that's actually going to taste nice. Um, that there really has been a tendency, I mean, certainly speaking to people at Marks and Spencer, their count on us range, um, they say it's absolutely death to male purchasing of the product to put count on us, because for some reason men will not buy things that say count on us in Marks and Spencer's. Um, and so they try other sorts of labeling, such as fuller for longer. Um, sounds a lot more macho, doesn't it? Really? Um, and th there are other aspects of educational information that I think actually could work be by appealing to these other processes. So one thing that people often don't do but could do that would help them is so-called pre-commitment. Um, pre-commitment is actually allowing, making decisions at a, a stage when you can make them that will then change your environment at a future date. So a pre-commitment to not drinking from Monday through to Thursday or whatever could involve not buying any alcohol on Monday morning. Um, and the pre-commitment is actually essentially saying my environment between these two days does not contain the alcohol, alcohol stimulus. So that's education information, but it's actually capitalizing on what we know about the rest of the system. That, that's just one example. Um, and I think pre-commitment does seem to work well for people. I mean, it works in, in other spheres as well. Beyond that, we have our environmental cues. And I, I think one of the steps in mitigating those is to actually take responsibility, acknowledge the fact that these cues have a, a strange degree of power over us that may exist below our levels of awareness and to treat that seriously. People get very, very worried about policies that seem to be robbing uh, people of their, their rights, and, and rightly so. Um, there are a lot of decent arguments against, um, against legislation in these areas if they're only going to really help a small minority. And I don't, I don't want to get into that. But I do think that um, acknowledging that there are certain environmental cues that will predict and predispose to behaviors and asking whether that's reasonable to subject someone to an environment that is essentially polluted by these stimuli is, is an important question to air and discuss rationally and not just sweep it under the carpet. We've also got our interceptive bodily signals that I, I've discussed. And I think if we become more aware of those, more aware of 
simply, and again, education comes into this, of what happens after we have a meal. What happens when you begin to eat? What hormones get secreted? When do they start acting? You know, if, if you're not full after 10 or 15 minutes, if you wait another 15 minutes, might you then feel full because these hormones have then been secreted? You know, there are certain aspects of our physiology that we could learn more about and capitalize on that knowledge in order to shift our behaviors. These are just ideas I'm throwing out about how we could tackle the system. I think um, current context, which is sort of halfway between interoceptive and environmental, is to me really, really important. Um, stress is one thing that will drive someone in a habitual direction. There's lots of evidence suggesting that um, rationality is one of the first things that goes out of the window under stressful conditions. People revert back to habits because habitual behaviours are rapid, they get the job done quickly. Um, and one thing you feel that you're short of in a stressed condition is time and the luxury to expend energy on thinking. Now people in stressful situations, whether time stressed or stressed in other ways, do tend to engage in more health-harming behaviours, including overconsumption. And I think any attempt to address overconsumption at the more personalised level has to take that into account. Um, availability is an important, are an important determinant of what exactly we, um, we choose to eat. Salads that are placed closer to people on a food bar will be more eaten more than if they're placed behind the less healthy uh, objects. It's a simple manipulation of the environment can produce remarkable effects in what people choose and, and consume and, and how much of it they consume. Uh, perception of resources um, that a person has can be profound drives to consumption. I think uncertainty is one of the um, states or situations that we really are sort of cognitively allergic to. And our behavior under situations of uncertainty can really change our behaviors. There was a, a very good economist in, in Cambridge who said something very wise to me. He said, if you want to, um, to get a small child or a pair of small children to overconsume Coca-Cola, just give them one bottle and two straws. And their perception that there is a limited resource that is being used up by someone else is actually a profound uh, contributor to or motivator for consumption. And I think there's something to be learned from that simple observation. So availability, resources, and competition. Ultimately, I, I, I want to end by just reminding you that I said I think one of the core principles of how our brains function is to become a predictive model of the world it's in. And the insight that's, I think, most useful from, from that is that it doesn't make sense to talk about just brain processes in isolation. We have to think about the relationship between brain and the world as a recursive negotiation. And so when you're determining whether somebody is acting in the most rational, healthy or unhealthy manner, you really need to look at the world that they're in and not just uh, try to isolate the sort of cognitive processes that they're engaged in. There's a phenomenon called temporal discounting, which is nicely illustrated by the so-called Michel's marshmallow paradigm. Many of you will have seen this. You, um, you take a, a small child and you put a, a marshmallow in front of them and say, I'm going to leave you alone for five minutes now. And when I come back, if that marshmallow is still there, you're going to get two marshmallows. If it's not, nothing. So temporal discounting, which really, in some of us, never quite disappears, is the tendency to not be able to resist the immediate reward now as opposed to the bigger reward at a later date. And it's at the heart of thinking about long-term health goals. It's often self-denial now in pursuit of bigger rewards later. Um, now, there's a tendency to say, oh, well, certain people who are more vulnerable to... Um, overeating, overconsumption, to alcoholism, to drug addiction, they're very bad at temporal discounting. You know, they want their reward now and they can't wait. And somehow it's seen as a sort of moral failing. I would argue that actually when you look at the world that some people inhabit, the most rational response is to take what you can get when you can get it. And then actually temporal discounting would be an extraordinarily irrational behavior. And so I think it's very important that we don't simply try to look for a, a simplistic one cognitive process answer to anything, that any question we pose and any intervention that we try to shape is based upon a much more um, integrated view of, of what the drives to our consumption are.
And on that note, I think I've done my 40 minutes exactly. So thank you very much for listening. Um, thank you. So I, I'm, of course, very happy to take questions, and we have as much time as you want. So I think the lights will go up, and then um, if you raise a hand, we have people with microphones. I can see one person there and another here. My first. Um, thank you for explaining to the brain doesn't happen in isolation. What the brain does doesn't happen in isolation, and often it's influenced by hormones. And I'm wondering if you've done much research at all on the gut and uh, how bacteria is also affecting our brain and our desires to eat and and okay and, and appetite. That's, that's a great point. So I, one thing I didn't mention, and I'm sure that people will have heard of this, is the micro, so-called microbiome. Um, I haven't personally done any research on that. I must say I'm keeping an extremely close eye on it. So far, the work coming out suggesting that there may be a profoundly different pattern of microbial, well, infestation doesn't sound like the right word, but colonization of the gut in people who are prone to different sorts of both mental illness and health-harming behaviors. I think that's looking promising um, in rats. Uh, <laughs> Whether it extends to humans properly, I don't know. But I, I, I think it's a point well worth raising and well worth keeping our eyes on. Um, I'm not really sure if this is on topic, but I was wondering about your thoughts about eating disorders mm -hmm. and particularly how all of these factors you've been talking about may influence their development. Um, I, th I think any act of consumption... Um, whether so-called disordered or not, will have these factors relevant to it. So um, interesting, when I, when I first went into psychiatry, my, my profound interest was in anorexia nervosa, uh, which I think is an extraordinarily complex and difficult and you know, earth-shattering condition. My feeling is that these principles um, will be and can be useful in thinking about eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or so-called binge eating disorder. But I think we're then bringing in uh, perhaps greater emphasis on some other parts. So we've done a recent study on the impact of stress on one's tendency to um, overconsume in a binge-like manner. And you certainly find in animals that a stressor can provoke binge-like behavior, stress and uncertainty. And it does seem to be that in humans who are more prone to binge-like eating disorders, um, minor stressors can actually be, uh, I mean, the, the, the data are too early yet, but the minor stressors can actually produce a slightly different response in terms of what they choose to eat and how much of it they eat. Um, so I, I hope that this ultimately becomes relevant to that, but I wouldn't try and overstate the case at this point. I was just wanting to ask about the environmental uh, cues. Mm. What effect does lack of sleep have on your eating habits? And also, why, why did your eating habits change in the winter when there's no light or lack of light? What, what is it about light that makes you want to eat more when you, I don't understand. I, I often wonder about this. I mean, certainly sleep is an one of the sort of, uh, to me, it's the sort of canary in the coal mine of a lot of problems with both mental health and behavioral uh, ill health. Um, and it's certainly the case that a number of people report that, let's say, say they have a, a binge eating disorder, that their binge eating becomes much, much worse when they've had a prolonged period of lack of sleep. And unfortunately, the two, as you probably know, tend to go together. What, what drives that biologically or psychologically, I really don't think we know. But I, I do think that sleep, stress, and um, patterns of reward-related behavior are intimately linked. Now, I suppose we could speculate on some sort of atavistic, hibernating-type uh, you know, biological response uh, that might explain winter-related eating. Um, on the other hand, it could be something more mundane, such as less tendency to be out and about and doing things. So I, I can't answer that with any sort of scientific precision, but I, I would definitely acknowledge the point you've made, that it this does seem to be clearly related. Um, um, 
Okay? So you mentioned that people that were better at the marshmallow test were better at temporal inference? Uh, temporal discounting. Sorry, but, yeah. temporal discounting. Um, so what makes some people better than others and how can we become better at it? And also there's a strange link between that and um, not only to do with food, but I guess people who are worse at temporal discounting may procrastinate a lot more at work, say. So they'll take the kind of leisure time up front and then have to work really hard at the end to make up for it. And that's yeah yeah yeah. So it's a great point. So so there is a sort of meme within cognitive neuroscience that temporal discounting, which is measured by the marshmallow test, that that is a wonderful predictor of later success in life. Um, you know, if you can just resist that marshmallow when you're two, then you're going to be company executive when you're <laughs> forty. Um, the evidence doesn't really back that up, but it does. The, the the capacity to do that task does correlate with a lot of measures of so-called frontal lobe function, your ability to inhibit distraction, to stay on focus when um, you know, other stimuli are driving you in a different direction. I mean, with respect to the steersman analogy, it might be sort of like having a bigger sail on your boat or something, something that allows you that greater element of control. Um, nobody really knows what the, what's at the root of the variability, and lots of people are saying, oh, well, it must be frontal connectivity, but nobody's actually, you know, there's a lot of plausible just-so stories, um, but uh, nobody really knows the basis of being good at temporal discounting. Now, your other question, which I think is profoundly interesting, which is, can we get people better at te temporal discounting? Um, I think that's a great question. There is growing evidence that the right sorts of cognitive challenges practiced repeatedly can change brain wiring. I think that's indubitably true. But I think that should be balanced against the fact that there are many reasons why somebody might be in a situation where temporal discounting is a less rational process. I think stress is a great sort of flattener of temporal discounting. It just it makes it very difficult to look into the future when what you have to deal with is, is now, here and now, where the reward that you're anticipating in six years' time might have gone right down the swanee by virtue of the fact that you're in an uncertain job and situation. And so I think it, it, considerations of temporal discounting have to meaningfully take into account that person in that situation. So it's not like we can say, OK, let's get everybody good at temporal discounting and, um, you know, Happy, happy world. Um, I, I, but having said that, I think that you know, encouraging people, uh, and if there are ways of training it, might help a certain proportion of people in certain situations. There was a, a gentleman there. Thank you for a very stimulating talk. As you were you. giving it, it occurred to me that one of the biggest changes in social behavior in my lifetime um, has been the drop in smoking frequency in the population. And it's essentially been quite successful. It's gone down from 70 to 20%. To what extent do you think there's a parallel there that could help us? Or do you think the two situations, smoking and call it overeating, are so different physiologically and psychologically that we have to start afresh and can't use the parallels and the mm. things we did yeah. to reduce smoking? Okay, thanks. Well, I, I really like the way you phrased that question because I think it's sort of the answers partly I in the phrasing of the question, the, the psychological and physiological differences between smoking and eating. Um, so, as you say, smoking, um, curbing smoking has been a very, very successful um, social change uh, within our lifetimes. I think another one is drink driving. There, there, are, there are some things that just have been done really well. Now, with smoking... Um, the big advantages I think people have had are you don't need to smoke to live. Um, so it's not a case of, um, you know, sort of improving the cigarettes you smoke or how often you smoke them or that, although that can contribute. And also, um, with smoking, there's a clear addictive agent. Now, when the word addiction gets bandied around, you suddenly get people who wouldn't normally be on your side on your side. So people are much more willing to accept legislation to protect their children from smoking if there's a potential argument that the smoking will control their children. Now, this same argument has been advanced with respect to food in the USA and to a smaller extent in Britain, which is that food is addictive, or particularly certain types of food 
are addictive, um, highly processed foods or um, high fat, high sugar, and so forth. Or um, hyperpalatable is the other term that gets used. Now, here we're in quite an interesting territory because if food is truly addictive, as some people are arguing, or if the, these types of food are truly addictive, then the government should have the leverage to actually legislate. You know, you could have people on street corners, do you want to buy some sugar? You know, it could actually potentially become something that they could, could control legally with the backing of a libertarian population. Um, the problem is that the actual evidence that food can be treated in the same way, psychologically and physiologically, is very, very weak. And I think if you're gonna follow the science, as I think we should, over the sort of convenient practicalities, then um, legislation against food is much harder. And partly because people just get very, to some extent rightly, angry at the idea that pleasures are being taken away to protect other people. I mean, they tried it in the USA, uh, in New York, with the ban on, um, you know, these sort of magnificent size barrels of, of soda, uh, super-sized soda, whatever it was. And, and I think Rudy Giuliano uh, limited the size. And there was a huge protest. And when eventually the, the law was revoked, Sarah Palin said, this is a, a victory for libertarian soda drinkers everywhere. Um, you know, people just won't buy it. They don't. Is there someone? Uh, hmm? Oh, I can see a couple of hands up. Oh. Yeah, or oh, a hand. Huh. Yeah, so thank you for your talk. Really interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, so in the short term, uh, clearly it's going to take a really long time to change uh, these social behaviors as a culture that we've developed. In terms of the medical management of the obesity crisis that we have at the moment, mm -hmm. do you think the focus is going to stay primarily on surgical interventions, or do you think things like giving artificial leptin or hormonal drugs to alter our behavior are going to become part of the normal uh, drug taking that people have in the next coming generation? OK, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, we are having a situation where some people uh, loss of weight is life-saving. And so the, the question about medical intervention becomes deeply pertinent. Um, surgery is very drastic. It does work, um, uh, but it comes with a, a high cost, both in terms of the risks of surgery, because you are by definition operating on a, a group who are at very high risk of anesthesia and so forth. Um, and also the longer term effects of bariatric surgery are still something of an unknown. And there are certainly some psychological sequelae that are profoundly worrying. So there's an awful lot of, I mean, I think m many drug companies are thinking, if I can get the anti-obesity blockbuster, boy, we're in the money. Um, so what was um, marketed a good few years ago was Ramonabant, which uh, uh, acts on cannabinoid receptors. And that was actually producing quite marked weight loss. But it had this problem that I alluded to, which is people are getting terribly depressed because their appetite for everything had gone down. So now what uh, people are going for is the other thing you mentioned, which is hormonal. Um, leptin, no good. So when, when leptin deficiency was discovered and leptin treatment, uh, which, as you saw, is very powerful, was discovered, there was a, a huge excitement over what this could do for obesity. But actually, in general non-leptin deficient obesity, um, leptin levels are actually raised anyway, and there's a leptin insensitivity in the brain. So if anything, treating with leptin might be a sort of adjunct to something else. Um, the other hormones I mentioned, these lower, well, upper gut hormones, GLP-1 and PYY, people are now starting to look at those um, and getting some quite promising results in terms of weight loss and appetite suppression. Who knows what, um, what uh, you know, side effects those are going to come with over the longer term, though. But there's a very active pharmaceutical drive towards anti-obesity compounds. And there's somebody here in the front. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, you. Can you explain why, um, why people have different preferences for different types of food? Um, I mean, I like broccoli, I like, uh, I like uh, chili foods, but other people I know like very hate that and like more sweeter foods. Any reasons why or? Well, um, I mean, at the risk of sounding horribly vague, some of them are 
clearly genetic. So the so-called sweet tooth, I think they've, they've actually discovered quite a small collection of genes that can profoundly predict your tendency to have a liking for sweet things. I unfortunately have inherited whatever makes you like sweet things. I don't know what the broccoli gene is, but you, know, <laughs> you can market it. To some extent, I think, I mean, preferences are set up very early, and they're often driven by familiarity at a, at, in, in childhood. Uh, and so early familiarization with good vegetables and well-cooked so forth um, can actually lead to an adult who does prefer those sorts of things. So, I mean, this is horribly vague, but it's partly genetic, partly the environment and learning environment that you've been brought up in. And I also think that um, you can actually quite rationally begin to create a liking for a food by beginning to associate it with things that you value. Certainly, as, as I've got older and have started to think, well, you know, the, I'm not immortal, and there's going to be some sort of breakdown of this body in the not-so-distant future, suddenly I'm starting to find that healthy meals taste nicer. You know? <laughs> they don't leave me. And I do think that there's a strong element of that that can be capitalized on. So I'm not disavowing education, information, and the cognitive brain, the rational brain. But I just think it needs to sort of fit into that circle of complexity. Mm -hmm. And there's, a, there's somebody here. Oh, hi. Yeah, hi. Um, so my question was, uh, going back to the question about uh, anorexia and bulimia and given your background mm. and around the area of environmental clues, uh, clues and rewards and, uh, and so on, we're dealing or we're looking at a first generation of teenagers who've grown up within Instagram, on camera. Have you any thoughts about the impact of that environment, those stimuli, the rewards, um, pro-anorexia websites on yeah. eating disorders and that kind of behaviours. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply worried. Um, I mean, when I was training in psychiatry and learning about eating disorders, we were always taught that anorexia nervosa particularly thrived in ballet schools and, um, and convent schools and areas where people got together in a sort of uncontrolled self-reinforcing way or people could have that opportunity and I think to an extent that was true and I think that what uh, Instagram and social media are offering if uncontrolled is the same sort of environment but on a much bigger scale um, I, th I think it is deeply worrying I think the pro-anorexia uh, websites are extraordinarily worrying I do think that um, social media generally actually could be an enormous force for good and I do think we see instances where it become a mutually supportive media for people who are trying to recover. So I wouldn't tar social media within the brush entirely, but I, I entirely agree with the concerns that were implicit in your question. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of people here. Hi, I was just wondering about uh, certain uh, clothing manufacturers and shops and such like, where there's one chain in our high street that's taken to putting in um, bigger than, well, bigger models. Mm. So the clothes look like they're a size 14, 16, which isn't necessarily unhealthy, but um, I think, I don't know what I think, <laughs> um, but isn't that having an effect on resetting what we think is acceptable? Or, yeah, Because isn't that slightly more than it should be? So I think that's a very good point. I mean, one of the big sort of behavioural nudges that if you look at the behavioural insights team working for the government who don't seem to do much research, but they have lots of good ideas. Um, one of their ideas, uh, they have some graphs as well, but one of their ideas is that the creation of social norms uh, is what can really powerfully motivate behaviours. So if you're sending out tax reminders, you don't just remind them, you, you give them a piece of information about what percentage of people have already completed their tax returns and suddenly people are sort of buying into that and it's a social normalization is a very powerful reward in itself. Now I think that what you're describing which is actually a response to a changing profile of, of weight and shape and so forth can inadvertently then become a reinforcer of that. Um, I think it's a very difficult question because you know, somebody who is size 16, 18 and beyond wants the clothes that, that, that they think will look good. And, it, and I want them to have them. You know, I don't, I don't think we should take that away, but I think it, 
there is inevitably a danger as something becomes normalized and accepted that that then becomes what you aspire to or what you find normal. There's a, oh, sorry. Yeah, this will have to be the last question because it's now half past. Um, um, it's kind of an obvious one, really, but um, so I've got two young children, and I go to the supermarket, and my daughter has the sweet tooth that you described. It's a lot cheaper for me to buy a packet of biscuits that costs 50p and provides X number of calories than it is to buy fruit, for example. And I'm sure that there are millions of people that have that yes. same problem. And what can be done in terms of making food more affordable that's healthy? Because it's so much cheaper to buy unhealthy food, and I'm reinforcing that negative um, association for my daughter now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, if you go to a service station, you can have an absolute banquet at, at Burger King for <laughs> under a fiver. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, the, I mean, I'm trying to allude to that in terms of this context, stress, availability, resources, competition. I think it's such a massive, um, a massive contributor to the problem. And th th there is a, you know, I think there's an argument to be made for subsidised vegetables, for, for even paying people to eat vegetables, but. People get up in arms about the idea that you should t give these feckless people money uh, in order to encourage them to eat vegetables. It's a terrible waste of taxpayers' resources. Actually, I think it would save an enormous amount of money if, if we did, and I agree with you. I think thinking about the cost, the real cost, both in time and, and money, is, is a huge part of the consideration. Um, I think we have to finish there, so thank you very much indeed for your questions and comments. <laughs>